Before we get into the sermon, I need to ask your forgiveness and apologize. Um, I was listening back over the sermon last week, and at one point in the sermon, at about the 37-minute mark, I felt that my tone and even my choice of words was not appropriate. At one point in my passion to try to defend the doctrine of God's election, I actually told those who disagreed with me to shut up. And, uh, and that was wrong, and it was sinful. And so I ask your forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding me that you use imperfect vessels to share your perfect word. Because if we weren't reminded of that on a regular basis, we would be so prideful. So forgive us all of our sin that we brought in here this morning, Lord, whatever it might be. Get our hearts ready to hear your word and to submit to your word. And no matter how true your word might be, Father, we know that we, we are so weak. And so we can't hear it right. We can't speak it right apart from your help. So God, help these weaklings in this room this morning. All of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to Malachi, if you would. We're going to finish our sermon on Malachi this morning, which will also finish our, 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 our series through the um, Minor Prophets, 12 overview sermons over 12 Minor Prophets that has turned into 13 overview sermons over 12 Minor Prophets because we couldn't get all the way through Malachi last week. So we're going to finish Malachi this week, so turn there to Malachi. Um, we're going to start reading in chapter 4. We're going to read all of chapter 4. It's just six verses. So we're going to read all of chapter 4. So you can go ahead and turn to that point. But as you're turning there, let me remind you of a few facts about Malachi. Um, Malachi's name means my messenger. And that is important, as we'll see a little bit later in the sermon. Um, it was written around 450 B.C. This is the last word of Scripture, last inspired word of Scripture in the Hebrew canon, in the Old Testament. And so God would not speak give an inspired word again until 400 years later when his son would come on the scene. Um, Malachi consists of a short introduction and six disputes, disputes between God and his people. And the way it's done is that God will say something and then anticipating their response, he will say, but you say, and then he says what they were thinking. And this is a rhetorical device to expose what was in their hearts. And so last week we were only able to cover the first two disputes. And I told you the disputes are in a structure, in a chiasm. So there's dispute one, two, three, four, five, six. Dispute one and six correspond to each other. Dispute two and five correspond to each other, as do disputes three and four. And I'll try to tie some of that in as we go along today as well. But we're going to start off by just reading all of chapter four. So please stand if you would as we read God's word. Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 and reading all the way to the end of this chapter. The word of the Lord says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. 
Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Heavenly Father, we now ask that you would bless not only the reading of your word that we just did, but now bless the preaching of it. Again, Lord, we ask for your help because we are incapable of preaching or even listening to your word rightly without your help. And so, God, we pray this morning that your spirit would open up eyes and ears to hear and to see your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. Now, I want to do a little illustration. I need a couple of helpers. I need someone. How about a young man? Well, a young lady. Come on up here. Do you like to play football? Oh, good. All right. Good. Now, let's pretend like you're a football player. It's football season. It's all coming back. Bulldogs, Falcons, all that stuff, right? And so, like, you're the quarterback, and you have the football. I don't have a football with me. I should have gotten one. You have a football, and I'm the other team, and I'm going to come at you. Now, what do you hope is there to help protect you? You hope you have a teammate, right? You hope you have a lineman, someone that can keep me from getting to you. So let's see if we can find you a, a lineman here. Let's see here. Well, how about Rowan? Come on up here, Rowan. Let's just go all Rosberry this morning. All right. The all Rosberry team. Now, stand in front of your sister here. Okay. Let's pretend she has a football. And I'm a mean guy from the other team coming to get her. Now, Taryn, do you have a lot of confidence that he's going to be able to protect you from me? Do you think he's going to be able to keep me from getting to you? Do you, do you think he is? You think he can stop me? No? You don't seem like you have a whole lot of confidence in your brother here. So should we try it out? You think you can stop me? From, no? Wrong. You need more people. All right, let's just change the person. Thank you. You've done a great job, but I want you to sit back down for a second. All right. Mr. Toby, come on up here. All right. Now... Um, Hey, Taryn, hey, now do you have confidence? Do you believe he can protect you from me? Yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, I'm the one that's a little scared now, all right? And I'm not even going to try it because I, I really want to finish the sermon in one piece, all right? Okay, but it changed all of a sudden, didn't it, when the person here changed. Now that Mr. Toby's here, you have confidence. You trust that he's going to be faithful, okay? And you know Mr. Toby here, number one, he knows a lot about football, so he's really good. Uh, number two, he's been endowed with size, all right? Uh, number three, he's a very faithful guy. I know, he's a good friend. He's going to protect you, all right? And so you know that about Mr. Toby here, and you know he's not going to let me hurt you, right? Okay, so that all changed all of a sudden. With Rowan here, you were a little nervous, and now with Mr. Toby, you look like you're confident, and you could be the next Tom Brady. All right, have a seat for me, both of y'all, real quick. Now, look at how... How things changed all of a sudden with Taryn once she had Toby there. And what I want to see this morning, a simple illustration here, is that we started off Malachi last week saying that the people of Malachi had a bad view of God. I think they viewed their God as a Rowan God. Sorry, Rowan. And not a Toby God. Not a big God who was going to be faithful. And because of their small view of God... They had corrupted worship, 
We'll see today there were corrupted relationships and everything else just sort of flowed from that. And so this morning, my challenge last week and today, my hope was that through preaching these passages of Scripture in Malachi, our view of God would get bigger, not our view of us. Unfortunately, we come to church a lot of times to pump us up instead of coming to church and say, God, show me more of yourself so that I might have more confidence in you and that I might worship you more rightly. So we come here to Malachi now. We're going to continue, and I want to give a little bit of recap from last week. So I'm going to bring up, I put in your notes, last week's points, and then this week's points, because like I said, originally this was one sermon that I had to cut in half. So that's just the way I'm still treating it. So I'm going to bring some recap in from last week. Last week we said that when God's people began to question his faithfulness and love toward them, they slowly began to drift away from him. That's what was happening to the people of Israel. They were questioning God's love and faithfulness toward them. So God tells them in Malachi chapter 1 verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So that's the first dispute. But you say, how have you loved us? How does God choose to remind them, to remind his doubtful people that he does indeed love them very much? Well, he simply points them to himself. He says, I am God, Yahweh. I am that I am, the self-existent one. He is totally independent and in need of nothing and no one. God is absolutely sovereign and free, even when it comes to the salvation of individuals and the fate of nations. So God chooses to show them his love by saying, what we have here in verse 2, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. He is reminding them of his sovereign freedom and election. It's an essential part of who he is. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, Exodus thirty-three nineteen. What makes God God is that he's totally sovereign and totally free. For him not to be totally free would mean that he's not totally God. And so by citing his freedom in choosing them, he reminds them that his love toward them is not based upon them which would be very flimsy ground. But his love toward them is based upon his own nature, which is indeed very, very solid ground. And as we saw last week, Paul teaches us in Romans that God's freedom in no way impedes his justice. He is just to act as he sees fit. He would be just to send all humanity to hell if he so chose. But he doesn't. God made a covenant of redemption within the Godhead before the ages began and decreed that by the death of the Son, many would be saved. Now, there is perplexing mystery in much of this. But will we believe what God has said, even if we cannot fully explain it? And will we let God be God and refrain from judging him and simply trust, as Abraham did, by saying, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Those were Abraham's words when he was questioning what God was going to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. He ended by simply saying, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You can read that in Genesis 18. So as I said last week, election is a family secret recognized only from the inside. We step in by act of the will through a doorway over which is posted, whoever is thirsty, let him come. That's human responsibility. But we enter only to look back and see the caption on the other side of the door says, Chosen in Him before the creation of the world. But what we need to see here this morning, and what I wanted you to see last week, is that the people of God had forgotten 
God's love because they had forgotten who he is. And this naturally led them to a faulty worship. And so last week, the only other point we got to is that we saw that they drifted. They drifted towards unfaithful worship. Now, we would be left with a, we should be, I should say, we should be left with a profound sense of awe when we gaze upon the richness of God's electing freedom. That awe should feed worship, which should then lead to godly living. But the root of sin is always idolatry. We turn away from the one true God and what he's revealed about himself and find our satisfaction in other things. And our worship becomes corrupted. Now, as I said last week, worship is a major theme flowing through the book of Malachi. And the people of God were despising his name by the way they worshipped. We read last week that the people brought and the priests offered polluted sacrifices before God. Why? Why did they do that? Because they didn't fear or honor God. That's what we read last week. They despised his name, meaning they didn't, they didn't grasp his nature, who he says he is. Now, why do I passionately plea for you to embrace the sovereignty of God with all of its implications? Because I believe it's in here, first of all, and I believe it's an accurate understanding of who he is. I want you to be a better worshiper. And I believe it will drive you to deep worship. Now, if you have different convictions on the sovereignty of God because you believe it's an inaccurate view of who he is, then let's work through that. That's a good reason to have a difference with the doctrine of election. But if you have a difference with the doctrine of election for any other reason than that, then I beg you to really go to the scriptures and and work through this. God is absolutely sovereign, absolutely free. And you know what? It drives us to a deep, deep worship of him. The Israelites didn't get God. And so they didn't desire him. They didn't enjoy him. They didn't worship him as a great and sovereign king. Chapter 1, verse 14. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God will be worshipped for who he is, one way or another. Their sullied sacrifices failed to honor God and they failed to properly point toward God. And so therefore they failed to foreshadow the pure and spotless sacrifice that God was promising to his people, the death of his own son. So we can rightly say that their worship, therefore, wasn't Christ-centered. They didn't have Christ-centered worship. How much of our worship today is likewise blemished because it's catered to our wants instead of Christ's perfections? What does God think about that kind of worship? Verse 10 of chapter 1. Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I wonder if it would honor God more if some of the churches across our nation today would simply close their doors. He takes no pleasure in worship that caters to what men want and what men want to put on the altar instead of what he requires. So bad views of God is what was going on, which resulted in bad worship led by bad shepherds. And that's what we have going on so far in Malachi. Or to say it in another way, unfaithful worship flows out of a view of God that fails to comprehend his sovereign faithfulness to his children. So now we move on in Malachi, and it should be no surprise that when we don't view God as faithful, and we don't faithfully worship him, that we also treat others with unfaithfulness. So that's the next point in your outline here is that we see the people in Judah during that day, and even in our day, we drift towards unfaithful relationships. A drift toward unfaithful relationships. Now the third and fourth disputes in this book are about human relationships. They deal with human relationships. 
And at the top of all of our earthly relationships is the marriage relationship. Chapter 10, I mean chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now let me just say real quick in passing, covenant is a major theme in this book. Covenant is mentioned seven times in the book, but we don't have time to hang out there and make another great sermon. As a matter of fact, I would love to just come back to Malachi sometime before too much longer and just do a, a nice, slow sermon series through the whole book. But uh, here we see that uh, they were not faithful to others. They were faithless to one another. So we see this theme of faithlessness being established again. Why are they then faithless to one another? Well, they failed to see God's sovereign faithfulness to them, and thus they were unfaithful in worship and unfaithful towards one another. Look at verse 11. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. So sanctuary of the Lord, that's the temple. So again, worship is in view here. Their worship was first polluted by their bad view of God, and now we see that their worship is profaned by their unfaithfulness in their human relationships, primarily their unfaithfulness in their marriage relationships. The next verse says, For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So there's two issues here in the marriage relationship. Number one, the first thing is, they've been marrying unbelievers. God had strictly prohibited Israel from taking foreign spouses. Now, this wasn't for for ethnic or racial reasons, but for religious ones. God knew that if his people married unbelieving spouses, they would begin to drift. And so they did. It happened over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And we see also it's happening now after the exile. Again, this is about marrying unbelievers more than it's about race or ethnicity. Why do I say that? Well, we see in the Old Testament, we see Moses marrying a woman of a different race. We see Rahab from Jericho being married into the people of God. We see Ruth doing the same. But these women I just mentioned to you were no longer daughters of foreign gods when they married Israelites because they had forsaken the false gods and had embraced the one true God, Yahweh, of Israel. And so by doing this, okay, they had rejected their God, and by embracing Yahweh, they became children of Abraham by faith. So God here is condemning marriage of foreign women who have not converted to the worship of Yahweh. He is condemning marrying unbelievers. Now who knows why they were doing this? Maybe they had lustful reasons. Maybe the the unbelieving women were looser or whatever and they just thought this was they could have more fun marrying these women. Maybe there was political reasons. A lot of times uh, tribes or nations would intermarry uh, for, for political purposes. They would get along better if they, if they were intermarried. Or maybe they were just tired of their Israelite wives. I think the text seems to, to lend to that conclusion because we'll see here God speak about divorce in a minute. But why was this unfaithfulness toward God? Because over and over again we see that God's people marry unbelievers and they stray from God. They inevitably syncretize pagan beliefs with the worship of the one true God and thereby fail to honor and fear God as he should be honored and feared. But what about today? How does this apply today? What does the New Testament have to say about this? Well, the principle remains the same. Christians are not to marry unbelievers. Quite simple. Now, this is a highly neglected truth in today's church. What do we base marriages on? Even in the church, 
Compatibility, feelings, mutual interests or goals, chemistry. Rarely do we ask, do they love the Lord more than they love you? Rarely are our young people advised to ask spiritual questions first when they enter into relationships. I think, friends, we've lost our authority to speak on issues of marriage in our culture because we haven't even dealt with the issues that Malachi talks about. Both the marrying of unbelievers in the church is rampant and so is divorce. So we get out there and we try to talk authoritatively about gay marriage. We say we hold marriage high and the world doesn't believe that we hold marriage high because we've desecrated it in these ways. How can we talk about marriage to a culture when they look at us and see that we divorce just as much as they do? And that marriage, all it's about is simply chemistry and everything else that the world thinks it's about. And we don't even understand why God has designed marriage. Who are we then to go out and talk about gay marriage? You see, the reason the church has lost its voice is because the church strayed a long time ago on the issue of marriage. The scripture is very clear. God's people are not to marry unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Okay, you know what a yoke is, right? So you got two animals. You're going to plow a field and you have this wooden beam hooked up to the two animals. That's the yoke. So it's these two animals attached together through this yoke. And it makes sense that you have an ox and an ox and plow the field. You don't have a, a mule and an ox. You won't be plowing straight. What's worse is the animals will get hurt. Doesn't make any sense. 1 Corinthians 7.39 also tells us to only marry those who are in the Lord. So likewise, God's people are not to date unbelievers either. This may seem strict, it may seem harsh, but my friends, it's totally biblical. And when you, when you yoke yourself together with an unbeliever, you will stumble. You will get hurt. But worse than that, you will dishonor God and you'll be led astray from the one true God. You'll be led astray from true worship. In this passage, God calls the, the union of one of his children with a pagan, he calls it an abomination. And we know that he calls homosexuality and other sins abominations. But marrying an unbeliever, how many in the church think that's an abomination? God calls it an abomination, something utterly detestable to him. But there was more here in Malachi in regards to marriage. Chapter 2, verse 13. And this second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So stop right there. Again, worship is in view here. The people were worshiping with great passion, with great groaning, with tears, but God was not accepting their worship. Why? Look at verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Apparently divorce was rampant in God's people and their worship was suffering because of it. If there's ever a word for today's culture and today's church, it's this right here. Friends, divorce is rampant in the church and our worship is suffering. All across this nation. Now, I want to be gracious here. I know there's many and even some in this room who have gone through the terrible trauma of divorce. But divorce is still a terrible assault on God's creative design. And therefore, God has strong words against it. 
Notice why divorce is dishonoring to God. It says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. So if there's a person who is a witness to a legal agreement, and one person decides to break that agreement, well, the witness is brought in to testify to the fact that both parties had agreed to the covenant. Now, one party may try to discredit the witness in order to get his or her own way, and that's exactly what these people were doing. They were dishonoring God. They were discrediting the character of God, dishonoring his witness when they got divorced. Think about it this way. The marriage covenant is a three-way agreement between husband, wife, and God. So to break covenant with a spouse is also to break covenant with God. Do you see how this flows from the very beginning of Malachi? If you don't think God is a covenant-keeping God, then you won't think twice about not being a covenant-keeping person. If you don't think rightly about who God is, then you're not going to think rightly about any human relationship, much less the highest of all those, which is your marriage relationship. But we also see that divorce is an assault on God's creative order, his glorious design. Verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? So this is talking about how God put marriage together. Can you imagine if your child designed and and molded a piece of pottery into which he or she put all his heart and soul and, and comes and brings it to you and another member of the family just takes a hammer and shatters it? Friends, marriage is God's glorious design. It's a spiritual event. The joining of two souls sanctioned in heaven. Jesus himself said, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What's more is we know in Ephesians 5 that marriage is designed to teach about the eternal bond between Christ and his church. What do we say about Christ when we divorce? Guys, you need to see that that marriage is a Trinitarian work. Designed by God, sealed by the Spirit, pointing to the Son. So what do we say about God when we just walk away from those relationships? And this is also God's design for passing on the faith, continuing in verse 15. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Literally, this means seeds of God. Okay, this contrasts with the earlier phrase that we read earlier where it said daughters of pagan gods. You see, God wants children dedicated to the one true God. And the incubator of such seed is an intact home. The Christian home is the greenhouse from where the seeds sprout into spiritual life. The Christian home is the supply line for God's army of saints. Deuteronomy 6, Exodus 20, Psalm 78, many other passages of Scripture. We could go on and on and on. The home is the place where the faith is to be passed on. So it should be no surprise to us that broken homes destroy faith and dishonor God. So, verse 15, God says, Guard yourselves in your spirit. And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. More literally, verse 16 could read like this. For the man who hates his wife but divorces her, meaning he disfavors her, he rejects her. It's the same word that God used for Esau earlier. You treat your wife like the way God dealt with Esau. Put her away. 
Now, there may be a different translation in some of the Bibles out there that you're reading this morning. There's some pretty strong disagreement as to how this verse is to be translated. Some say this is the most difficult verse in all the Old Testament to translate. So it may read like this, and even in your ESV footnote, you'll find this. The Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce and him who covers his garments with violence. But I believe the ESV translators have it right. I think, therefore, this covering of one's garments with blood is tied to the act of divorce. It's not that God hates divorce and hates those who cover their garments with violence. Is that when you divorce, you are covering your garments with violence. This means that the garments are now unclean. This means that the person is now unable to worship. Do you realize the way you treat your spouse affects your worship? Well, we already read in Matthew chapter 5, if you have anything against your brother, you need to go deal with it before you come to worship, before you come to the altar. But 1 Peter 3 tells us that if a husband doesn't live with his wife in an understanding way, that his prayers will be hindered. Worship is affected by the marriage relationship. And in this case, their garments were so polluted by their divorce that God wouldn't even let them in his presence. So again, the word says, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So it's the second time God has said this exact same thing. Guard yourselves in your spirit. There's only two commands in this whole book. And this command here is one of the two. One of the few commands in this entire book. Guard yourself. That means to observe yourself. If we want to protect marriage from divorce, friends, it doesn't start with us trying to fix our spouse. It starts with a lot of introspection right here. It starts with us observing ourselves, guarding ourselves, looking deep within our own spirits. So in summary, marriage consists of a special and exclusive union between a man and a woman whose covenant relationship is witnessed and officiated by God himself. Therefore, Christians should not marry unchristians, and Christians should not divorce. It should not be an option. The only exception we know is the exception of infidelity. And then it's only permitted, not required. I think a lot of times people think infidelity means, yeah, divorce. It's permitted, but it's not required by God. I think you guys probably know people and heard stories of some great, amazing, God-wrought reconciliation that's come in homes where husbands or wives have been unfaithful. Since marriage is a three-way agreement made in heaven, then we see again that unfaithfulness toward a spouse simply flows out of our not fearing and honoring God. And so I think back, this whole story here in Malachi. If one doesn't think that God is faithful, as the Judahites were wondering, then he or she will not feel driven towards faithfulness in their human relationships. But in fact, God is faithful. And if we will be faithful in our relationships, we will be imaging forth him the way we should be. We'll be imaging God. Now, the fourth dispute we're about to come up here is tied to the third dispute because it also deals with human relationships. So let's move on into that. Chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, there's that great phrase again, that marks all of our disputes. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now let me pause right there. We see here again the people are doubting the character of God. So God gives them a promise of messianic hope 
here in these next words saying that he is going to deal with the unjust. But do you see this pattern in the book of people questioning the character of God? Here it is again. But God goes on at the very beginning of chapter 3 to give them great, glorious, messianic hope. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So this is speaking of John the Baptist preparing the way. It says here, for me, for the Lord. And we know that John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And of course, this is speaking of the coming of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now notice the play on words here. Notice the play on words. Remember, Malachi's name means my messenger. So that word messenger is used throughout the book. So ultimately, this is a book written by a guy named My Messenger, who is exhorting the messengers of God, which are the priests in chapter 2, verse 7, to look for a messenger of God, which is John the Baptist, chapter 3, verse 1, who is going to be the forerunner of the messenger of the covenant, who is Jesus in chapter 3, verse 1. But do these people really want the messenger of the covenant to come? Look at verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He is saying that judgment is going to come. God is going to clean. He's going to burn away the dross. He's going to clean his people. And that judgment is going to start with the house of God, those who claim to be God's people. Their cynicism about the justice of God was now going to come down on their own heads. Listen, friends, how often do we decry and complain about the justice of God or how he's choosing to run the world And in reality, all we want is for God to give justice the way we want it done. We want the bad guys to be dealt with out there without seeing that we deserve the same hot hell they do. But God begins with his own house, and specifically with the spiritual leaders. Verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And he does this for his purposes, friends. He does this for his purposes to purify his people so that they might worship him rightly. Look at continuing in verse 3. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Friends, do you see what God is aiming for here? Right worship. It comes back to worship. God desires pure worship from pure worshipers. I should say he desires pure worship from purified worshipers. And he is promising to send the messenger of the covenant, his son, who is going to do that purifying work. He, this messianic messenger, will do this dross-burning work where he's purifying his children like gold and silver, enabling them to bring offerings of righteousness, enabling them to worship in spirit and truth. But he's also going to bring judgment. Look at verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Did you see what it said there? Then I will draw near to you. Sorcery, adultery, lying, oppression, the mistreatment of the aliens, the sojourners in the land. It was all happening amongst God's people. 
And it was simply a reflection of, of the fact they did not fear and honor God. They despised his name. It says here, they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Friends, those who claim to be part of the church, who continue in unrepentant sin, can by no means have any confidence that they're saved. If you continue in unrepentant sin, the Bible says these adulterers, sorcerers, they're not going to be allowed in heaven. Such were some of you, is what Paul says. There has to be transformation, change, and it's evidenced by the fruits of our lives. Now, let's remember way back here, it says they didn't, what I've kind of been pointing to this whole sermon, they didn't honor or fear God because they failed to see his sovereign freedom and his goodness, and thereby they failed to see his love. Thus they failed to worship him faithfully and they failed to treat others faithfully. I think it's all tied together. Now lest you think I'm grasping at straws here when I say that an understanding of God's freedom and his faithfulness actually drives us to be more loving and faithful in our relationships. You may think, oh, you're just grasping at straws there, Steve. No, I'm going to let the Apostle John back me up. 1 John 4.19 We love because what? He first loved us. Sovereign, free God who first loved us and then we love. Not only him, but others. If we were wrong about the doctrine of God's freedom and election, I would assume that John would put that verse in the other order. But he doesn't. We love because he first loved us. So the way we love others is dependent upon the way we view God and understand his love toward us. And now we move on to the fifth dispute, which is connected to the second one. The second one was all about not giving God their best in worship, lame animals and all of that. And likewise, the fifth dispute is not about giving God their best. They're holding back. They're holding back the possessions that God had given them. Now, I'm not going to be able to spend a whole lot of time here on this last, on this dispute here. And like I said, it's just, it's just so much in Malachi that we could go on for sermon after sermon after sermon. I figured you probably got, are ready to get out of the summer in the minors. And so I didn't divide it into a third sermon, although I was tempted. It says here, well, let me just give you the next point. There's a drift towards an unfaithful view of our possessions. An unfaithful use of possessions. I think your notes say use of possessions. Malachi 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Boy, we've heard that all throughout the Minor Prophets, haven't we? He's calling on them to repent. And that sets up the fifth dispute. Here they go. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me and the whole nation of you. You see, God's law had required that the people bring a tithe, a tenth of everything to him. And they had shown dishonor to God's word by neglecting what God had told them to do. And what's more, they had shown what was really in their hearts because our use of our possessions is simply a window into the condition of our souls. God says that this disposition towards possessions was actually robbery toward him. The word robbery here simply means to plunder or to take by force. 
So when you think about it, God owns everything. Everything we have belongs to God anyway. We're simply stewards. And to not give back to him is, in essence, holding him up like a bank robber. Verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. What does this mean here? Food in my house. The house is his temple. The tithe provided for the priests and for the operation of the temple for worship. Again, worship is tithe. This theme of worship just runs throughout this book. Friends, this is not the sermon to get into the ins and outs of whether or not the tithe is still operative for God's people today. I do have an opinion on that. And there are good arguments on both sides of that question. But all agree that God's people are called to put their faith into action by sacrificially and generously giving to God. Now the Old Testament tithe is certainly a good place to start. After all, Abraham gave 10% to Melchizedek prior to the law being given. So if prior to the law Abraham felt compelled to offer 10%, how much more should we on this side of the law give at least 10% to Jesus, our priest, forever in the order of Melchizedek? Regardless, God is challenging them to give him what's already his. He says, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Need. Verse 11. I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field. Shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed. For you be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Like we had read in Haggai, God had withheld blessings upon the land due to their sinful hearts. And so too here he promises to restore blessings and to provide all they needed. Not everything they wanted, all they needed. If they would simply give to him what was already his. So I love Malachi. Malachi is one of the great books of the Bible that get you in trouble when you preach it. We've got, we've got election, we've got divorce, and we've got tithing. I mean, you really can't ask for three topics that get people more riled than those three. But I want us to see here that God keeps bringing them back to a view of himself. Friends, if you don't have a view of God that acknowledges his sovereign rule over every aspect of the universe, including your possessions, well, then you won't fear him, you won't honor him enough to give him your first fruits of your possessions. Matter of fact, you may even begin to think they're yours and not his. Friends, our view of God is clearly reflected in how we choose to spend our money. Your checkbook speaks volumes about how you view God. And our view of God is really what drives all these things we've mentioned both last week and this week. So let me draw our sermon to a close with the sixth disputation, and you'll see how it's related to the first. Let's read it. Malachi 3, verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Again, they're questioning God's love towards them. They're questioning God's character. They're questioning his justice toward evildoers. They don't believe in the God who chose Jacob and hated Esau. They just don't believe in that God. So to go back to our illustration... They have a bad view of, 
of who is covenanted together with them. And so they consider it vain to serve God. And so they walk away from God. I think what you're seeing here are two groups of people here at the end of this passage. These people here have said, it's in vain to serve God. After everything God's told them, they still say, eh. But Malachi draws a contrast between those just mentioned, these faithless people, to the faithful, to those who do believe, to those who do trust, to those who will fear and honor God's name. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Isn't it great that God always preserves a remnant? There's always a group of God-fearers. So here's my last point. When God's people trust in his faithfulness and love toward them, they find themselves anchored with an unwavering hope. Listen to the hope for those who fear and honor him. Listen to the hope here. I'm just going to read these last verses. Verse 17 here. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Boy, there's a lot there, right there. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, what a day. But what day is this? It's the day when the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Well, what is this? It's the coming of the Messiah. The healing and the purification of dirty sinners would happen on that day. It's the day of Christ. Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. According to Jesus, John the Baptist was this prophet who came in the spirit of Elijah. And therefore, this great and awesome day has come already, but not yet as well. Right now is a time of grace and turning. Right now is the appointed time to come and believe and turn from your sin. Jesus came and inaugurated this great day of the Lord. And when he gave his life on the cross, shedding his blood for the sins of his people, it began. And we live in the final day. But the day is not done yet. For the day is going to close with a great an awesome judgment that God's going to bring upon all sinners. And all those who are not found in Christ will be subject to that awesome judgment. But right now is the time for 
healing. Right now is a time for hearts to be made new. Right now is a time for relationships to be healed, where the generations are healed. A time when the foundational relationships of humanity are restored, when God's people are faithful to one another again, when the hearts of the fathers are turned to the children and the hearts of the children are turned to the fathers. And there's great hope here for those who fear and honor God, for those who do believe that God has provided a way for unfaithful, dirty sinners like us to be clean, to be refined, to be restored, to be changed, and to be made faithful. Friends, none of you in here, and myself included, none of us are able to be faithful to the Lord in our human strength. It's only because he was faithful to us that he makes us faithful to him. Hebrews 6, 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Friends, indeed, those who trust in God's faithfulness and love toward them truly do find themselves anchored with an unwavering hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm convinced more and more as I look at your word and as I read passages of scripture like this great book of Malachi, I am convinced that the the church in America today is, is wavering and is straying and is drifting because we've stopped gazing at who you are. We've started looking inward at us. Father, we can't really see who we are on the inside without we don't look at you first. Let the glorious light of your holiness expose our sin. So God, I just pray, Father, for revival here at Harbin's, and I pray for revival in our nation. Father, if you would see fit to let us be a part of some great revival, oh Lord, please, Lord, We don't want to pump up our ego or anything. We just want to see the great, sovereign, free God of the universe be exalted in every pulpit across America. So God, I pray, Lord, that you would do that. Let us just be a part of it, Lord. But until that day, let us be found faithful. Let us be found faithful. God, I pray that your spirit would stir up faithfulness in each one of us. There are many ways that we're unfaithful. But God, if we're truly believers, I honestly believe this, Lord. If we're believers, if we've put our faith in Christ alone, then I believe you are doing a work in us to make us more faithful every day. Isn't it great to know, though, Lord, it is great to know, Lord, that even on the days that we're unfaithful, that your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You are always faithful, Lord. And we praise you for it. So God, help us to see your sovereign freedom. And in doing so, become more faithful worshipers. Become more faithful husbands, wives, fathers, children. Let us be more faithful citizens. Let us be more faithful in the way we treat widows orphans, more faithful in the way we treat aliens in our country. Let us be more faithful, Lord. And Father, in doing so, far be it that we take any credit 
but may we simply point back to you and say we love because he first loved us. So be glorified, God. Lord, whether we eat, drink, whatever we do, we do it all for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.